The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Every year, over one million books are published throughout the world. Even the most energetic readers can only read a tiny percentage of that. How do we know which ones to choose? Enter the book reviewer, that intrepid arbiter of taste who passes judgment on the books that come his or her way. Sometimes they issue rave reviews, and authors who've toiled for years can pop open the champagne, or at least rest easy until the next review, which could be negative, or misguided, or just indifferent. We're talking about a million books, people. They can't all be gems. And then there's another kind of review, where the reviewer, who perhaps cares about books as much as any author, and perhaps has had his or her fill of reading a certain kind of book, works up a full head of steam. This book. Oh, this book. This will never do. And instead of protecting the tree, or at least just passing it by, the reviewer pulls out a hatchet. Chop, chop, chop. Attack, attack, attack. This book and this author are going down felled like a tree at the hands of a burly lumberjack. Why do they do it? Sometimes the motives are pure. They might want to save the reading public from a bad experience. They might want to tell the author that he or she can do better. Or the reviewer might have a political agenda or a personal one. They might be jealous. They might just want to have some fun. And these reviews are fun, or they can be. If you love books, you probably rely on reviews at least to some extent. And when a critic sharpens his tools and starts swinging away, and the bark of some majestic tree starts taking a few blows, it can be fun to read. Sometimes painfully fun, but fascinating nevertheless. Mike Palindrome joins us today for a look at hatchet jobs, when reviewers attack on the history of literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast, Hatchet Jobs. It's a little like doing an episode on car crashes or train wrecks. An unusual idea. Luckily, we have an unusual mind to tap into. Mike Palindrome. How is everyone doing here in America? We are still suffering under the quarantine. Blah, blah, blah. Home, home, home. Exhaustion is setting in. Luckily, I have the podcast to help me reach out to the world, and the world has ways to reach out back. That's being social in the era of social distancing. Have to stay six feet away from, pub from, from public. <laughs> have to stay six feet away from people. But emails can go straight into my mind, virus-free. So let's do this. Let's listen to a few emails, then come back with our hatchet jobs talk. We'll do all that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, 
Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here's one from Judy, subject HOL podcast. Please don't give in to pressure and change how you present the podcast. Loyal listeners love it how it is. Hearing the listening... (laughs) Sorry, I can't talk today. Hearing the listener emails is a vital element of the whole experience. Keep the faith. Keep up the good work. A faithful listener, Judy. Thank you, Judy. I agree. These emails are too good to give up. I truly do think this podcast has the best audience in the world, and the emails are the evidence of it. Thank you for the words of support. Here's one from listener Jackson. Subject, hi. Hi, Jack. Part one. I listened to your episode on the Wasteland recently, and it prompted me to give this email thing another shot. I had drafted one way back when you had your 200th episode, but I never sent it as I felt it sounded too egotistical. But here I am again. A lot has changed since then, and... Though I'm only in my mid-teens, when I look back at everything that has happened in late 2019 and 2020, I feel older. Anyway, you usually seem to like knowing where your listeners are, so I thought I'd give my setting, though it's hardly as interesting as the Mongolian Plains. I'm writing this email as I walk through my suburban Virginian neighborhood. The temperature is on the more pleasant side of intolerable, but still quite hot. There are crickets and birds chirping, and wondrously... No cicadas, making the air sound like TV static. I decided to compose this email after returning from a rather long excursion to Barnes & Noble. The books I bought, a modern fantasy novel that won the Hugo Award, at any rate it was written by a Hugo Award winner, a biography of Mithridates, a king during Rome's late Republican era, and a rather obscure little science fiction slash dystopia novel called Ice, which I know nothing about other than that it is celebrating its 50th anniversary are probably of little interest to you, but I thought I'd use this as an opportunity to suggest some topics for future shows. Early science fiction and early fantasy, as in pre-Tolkien fantasy, Tolkien deserves an episode of his own. I think it would be interesting to look at how these genres formed, as they both formed in the years after World War I, but that's just me, and I'm sure you have a sizable bank of ideas already. Part 2 Your podcast is one of the only ones I listen to consistently. I tend to be a nomadic podcaster, binging through a show at a time and then moving to something else that interests me. But I don't do that for yours. I guess it might just be sentimentality because your podcast is one of the first ones I listen to. But your podcast is also one of the only ones that I listen to at normal speed to try and prolong the experience of listening to it. This email has dragged on long enough, so I think I'll kill it here before it grows any more heads. Have a good day. And stay safe, Jackson. Well, thank you, Jackson. I'm so glad to hear that you're enjoying the show there in Virginia. Tolkien definitely deserves an episode for sure. He's on the list. And fantasy does too, especially the history of fantasy. I like that idea. The origins and the history of it. And of dystopian fiction, for that matter. I might need to find the right guest for an interview about that. Someone to help walk us through. In the meanwhile, I hope you stay safe as well. Subject, new title. Hi, Jack. If you are looking for a new podcast title, how about Jane's Bane? LOL. (laughs) I continue to enjoy your podcast. I am a new listener and have been scrolling back in time and listening to one each night. You have a long, rich collection, so I will have plenty to listen to for some time to come. Is Wazoo another Wisconsin term? LOL. Keep up the excellent work, and whatever you do, don't stop. Regards, William. Oh my, this is kind of an an insidery email with a few different in-jokes in there. William is writing with a wink. Poor Jane. That was one of my lower moments. I need to go high. I need to take the high road, but that gives me a chance to say something here about writing and podcasting and Twitter and reviews and critics. 
Nicholson Baker made an excellent point years ago that has always stuck with me. He was talking about John Updike. He had read one of Updike's stories, and he thought, well, this is wrong, and that is wrong, and I know more than Updike. Clearly, I'm smarter than Updike, so why shouldn't I be the famous writer? So he wrote a story and gave it to his girlfriend to read, and his, he said, isn't that better than Updike? And his girlfriend read the story, and then she said, well, I think you're smarter than Updike, but I think he's a better writer than you are. And it was this revelation, it triggered this revelation for Nicholson Baker that your writing is only half as smart as you are. Something gets lost from your mind to the page. So what did that tell him? Told him he was smarter than Updike's writing, but that didn't mean he was smarter than Updike because Updike was twice as smart as what he wrote too. It's a very interesting way to think about writing and writers, and it's very appropriate for what we're going to be talking about today when Mike gets here. Because a lot of times what people do, what critics do, reviewers, or just readers, what they do, or listeners, if we're talking about podcasts, what they do is find a flaw or a weakness or a mistake. And they, it's fine if you're going to point that out, if you're talking about the work. But sometimes that extends to the person who finds the flaw or the weakness of, or the mistake, and they say, aha, I'm smarter than this person. But you're not, or you might not be. You might be smarter than that story or that novel or that poem, but the person who wrote the story or the novel or the poem is also smarter than that story or novel or poem. You can't write 100% of your intelligence onto the page. It's only 50%. That's the Nicholson-Baker formula. Now, what about a podcast? Well, if someone is speaking live in an interview context, speaking off the cuff, trying to fumble for words, I'm not sure they'll even be at 50%. And what about Twitter? A single tweet? That's probably 10% at the most. 10% of your intelligence. You're 10 times smarter than your tweets. So you might be reading a tweet and you might say, well, this is a dumb tweet. I'm clearly smarter than this tweet, great, you are, that doesn't mean you're smarter than the person who wrote the tweet. In fact, your tweet about the tweet is probably kind of dumb too. That's not a reflection on you. It's a reflection on the medium. You're 10 times smarter than your tweet. So that's why the comment sections and the emails and the criticisms and book reviews and opinions can be so frustrating sometimes. It's why authors and celebrities and politicians and experts often get dragged into conversations that they shouldn't even need to be having. It's easy to be a critic. It's easy to poke a hole. But often you're not as smart as you think you are. So many times people will email me. I don't read these listener emails on the air. So many times people will email me with a correction, and their correction is flawed. And I point that out to them, and they apologize. Or I just shrug and say, wow, that's right, but it really doesn't matter. A novelist or a film director gets used to this too. Wow, you chose that to care about? And over time, maybe a critic builds up some respect. Siskel and Ebert had their own body of work to stand behind. That's different from just some guy on the corner ranting about a book or a movie. Now, if you're an artist, you want to reach those people. You don't want to hear that they didn't like your movie or your book or your podcast. You don't want people laughing when you're trying to make them cry or vice versa. But the critics often don't realize that their criticism isn't as smart as they are. It's half as smart. The same principle applies, the Nicholson-Baker formula. And so the critic comes in all full of anger and outrage or high-minded superiority, and they have something essential to say. And the novelist or the screenwriter or the television producer just shrugs and thinks, yep, or nope. But what they don't think is, oh, you're smarter than me, because that's not how it works. You might be smarter than the work, but they're smarter than the work, too. They're twice as smart. And so if you're writing your criticism with that in mind, thinking, I'm smarter than this artist... And the world needs to know that I am smarter than this artist, you're going to be frustrated and angry. Why? Because what you're talking about is the work, not the artist. You're smarter than the work, doesn't mean you're smarter than the artist. And in fact, 
your criticism, you're twice as smart as your criticism. Your criticism is not going to be as smart as you think if you think it's going to be as smart as you are. You're going to be frustrated and angry. Okay, let's let that serve as our guide here. We'll bring out Mike Palindrome to talk about some hatchet job reviews. Critics, I think most of the ones we chose here were actually novelists or poets or famous critics, people with some authority, people with a body of work they could stand behind. Mark Twain is free to criticize a fellow novelist all he wants. The public knows Mark Twain. They know what he can do. They can easily see how smart he is. They can take his books and multiply by two. It's the Nicholson-Baker formula, and it's very useful. Mike Palindrome, after this. Hey, joining me now is the man they call the Velvet Hatchet, whose mild demeanor has often hidden some of the most vicious literary attacks of our era, including the ribboning he gave Miguel de Cervantes. He's here today to talk about harsh reviews. Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Jack. <laughs> okay, so this was a fun one to do the research for. How do you feel about your picks? I had a secret agenda, I have to admit, <laughs> and trying to convey a message okay. about reviewing reviews in general. So, okay, do you want to do you want to tell us what that was, or do you want us? Do you want me to try to guess as we go along here? No, I'm 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 good to tell you. I mean, I I just think reviews are not that helpful. Mm. Okay. And maybe that's just the way I read, which is I don't really read things unless enough people recommend them to me. Mm -hmm. I'm just very reluctant to pick up a book and be like, oh, it just came out and look at the back and say like, well, I'll just read it. Yeah. That just, I, I'm not sure that's ever happened to me. Like for instance, when Elena Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend came out, somebody recommended it to me that I really, someone I like, and I put it on my list. And then someone else recommended it to me, and I was like, oh, it's already on my list, so I, mm. I understand. It's good. And then two more people recommended, and I still didn't read it. <laughs> and I actually can't remember why I picked it up and read it. <laughs> so that, that, that kind of is the way I read. Yeah. So I, I don't like reviews, and I generally don't like recommendations don't count for much with me. Right. Maybe hatchet jobs appeal to you um, just as like fun essays or something then. I like seeing people try to do something interesting other than just covering plot points. That mm, drives just, yeah. just kind of drives me crazy when they reveal plot points. Yeah. And there's a, a sort of style, especially in things like the uh, Sunday New York Times book review uh, that I used to get yeah. where, you know, they have such a condensed space and it, there's this thing where the second to the last paragraph is where the flaws are pointed out and it, it gets to be, right. uh, <laughs> you know, it starts to feel kind of oh, cookie cutter. It serves a purpose, but it it's something I stopped reading a long time ago. I'm sort of looking elsewhere to try to find if I'm looking for analysis of a book, I look elsewhere other than just straight book reviews. You know what? You know, the, I make two exceptions. One is if it's a, a nonfiction book that I'm never going to read. Mm. 
I love reading those book reviews. Like I read a, I, I read a book review of <laughs> the history of London Fog. Um, right. And I, I, I actually cut it out. And I saved it because I was like, I love this book review. I'm never going to read this book. It's yeah. 600 pages on London Fog. But this book right. review was like almost poetry. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then the other thing is if, and I started to see this, the rise of this probably in the last 10 years is that people will review four books along with the new book mm. by like Salman Rushdie. Right. And I, I, I will, I will read that. Right. That's sort of a New York review of books kind of thing. Yeah. Actually, both of those reminded yeah. me of the New York review of books. That's, which is a little bit different. I, I draw a distinction yeah. there where that's, that's true. Uh, where they take more of an overview, sort of a broader scope. That's a little bit different from the, the kind of book review that you used to read in, uh, in newspapers and maybe now you would read online at certain sites. And maybe it's, it's just, I've gotten older because when I was in my twenties, I read thousands of book reviews. Yeah. Right. I read them all the time and I probably almost like probably read them, read them to see if I, I could do it. If I could write a book like this, mm. I mean, it was probably like a little perverse part of me that was like, well, what's this book? What about, what's this one about? Yeah. Kind of giving you a uh, sense of the, the publishing industry. Yeah. 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 And then I, at some point I, I kind of got exa exhausted that. And then I, I wanted the book review to be at least as good as like a bad novel. And it didn't meet that standard. Mm. Right. <laughs> right. So, Well, didn't you say on Twitter recently that you've decided also not to read any news because you'd rather get your news from <laughs> novels or you'd rather read novels as that, that would, uh, be better than reading news. I I just read that um, news. Yeah, that news preaches to the choir, and that mm. news isn't interested in debate or not not even debate with the other side, but debate about an issue. Like, mm -hmm. but rather they they're constantly feeding you like almost pornography, little bits. Yeah, and they blow up the bit. So that it takes up space. So, and I, I just find that news, it's almost better to hear news um, articulated by a friend because yeah. to me, it just, it, it, it feels more alive hmm. than just reading, you know, these little factoids about what's happening. Yeah. I, I do feel, I hate to sound like kind of the old man shouting get off my lawn but i do feel like my consumption of news has changed so much from the days when i would get a morning newspaper and and read yeah. that at some point during the day usually just first thing in the morning and it was selected and curated and it was mm. you know prioritized and a story you would read it was an ongoing story you'd read the development of it but it would be day by day not hour by hour and minute by minute and I yeah. think I, I think it you just lose all the kind of perspective by not having that sort of a filtering sorting mechanism. Yeah, and I, I just and the the piece I read is by a Swiss novelist, writer, a journalist, and he he was saying that um, there's psych, psychological studies that say that the more hyperlink links an article has the less you get out of it because mm. your mind naturally is distracted by the idea that there's something else to do. Oh, right. Interesting. And I, th I just think that the reason you stop reading the news is not because you're done with it, but because you have to make lunch. Yeah. Or you want to read Thomas Mann. Right. I mean, and on the internet, that that moment where you close it, close the paper, Closing the paper has a finality in yeah. a way that online there's no finality. Right. I mean, it's like Aziz Ansari says, you know, there's something horrible about the internet because it's 3 a.m. and you're reading about Joe Pesci on Wikipedia. Right. <laughs> and it's, yeah, and it doesn't end. It, it, it is like when I used to get the Sunday newspaper, you know, you get the great big thick New York Times. Oh, I loved it. I yeah. loved it. Yeah. And it wasn't, but it wasn't that I thought, oh, good, because I need more information. It's, it was because, oh, this is how I want to spend more time doing this. 
Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, well, during the week, I only have, you know, 20 minutes to read the newspaper. But on Sunday, I'm going to set aside two hours or three hours. And so you wanted content to fill that space. You weren't saying, oh, I'm really hungry for more information and news so much as it was measuring it by the amount of time you were going to devote to it, kind of like the way you would do with a, a novel. Yeah, I mean, you just reminded me of how I, I used to work at my parents' um, stationery store, and we got the New York Times Sunday delivery on Saturday night. Mm. And we sold basically all the the thick, good stuff of Sunday's Times, but with a thin Saturday current edition. <laughs> and so I used to read that. Yeah. It, so I'd read all the Sunday stuff on Saturday night, and then on Sunday morning I'd get this the Sunday current like kind of section that covered all the inside stuff. But I'd read all the inside. I'd read the uh, the Sunday book review on Saturday night. It actually mm. came out on Saturday night. Yeah, so it was just so. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something that you, about each section. Yeah, there's clean that you don't get on the internet. Yep. I think that's right. Okay, we're off track. So <laughs> let me tell you what I did uh, for, before we get to the picks here. I tried to take good books or at least famous writers. I do have a couple here that are just really funny. Uh-huh. But generally, I thought, no sense shooting fish in a barrel. You know, some some great uh-huh. writer takes on some horrible book. That wasn't what I was trying to do here. And really, I found that wit and humor were essential. That's a hatchet job, yeah. but that's not funny. just isn't. Just doesn't really make sense. No, so nothing by Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, tip, I'm tipping my hand here. <laughs> okay. And then I tried to take modern reviews. Uh, uh-huh. I, I do. I made a top ten in case you stole my top five. But unless you stymie mm-hmm. me with your picks, I'm not going to try not to reach back into the 19th century with one major exception. But there were some really savage reviews going on back then. I've mentioned a few of them already in different episodes I've done on on characters, or uh, not characters, but authors of the 19th century. But I I thought it would be more fun to stay modern for this. So 10 savage reviews, five each. I'll let you go first. All right. So I, I picked, my first pick is Handmaid's Tale by Mary McCarthy. Mm. Oh, yes. <laughs> I just, I couldn't believe her review. I mean, this is, uh, you know, she, she she hated it. She called it ordinary, yeah. undistinguished, defective. I mean, it. <laughs> some of my other picks, I, I kind of took some comfort in saying like, well, who's this reviewer? Like, who, have we, we, do we even remember this reviewer now? But Mary McCarthy is a major figure. Yeah. And for her to just have kind of missed how groundbreaking Handmaid's Tale is. And I mean, not to, but to be a woman and to have missed the message of this. Yeah, I, but I just, it's such a head scratcher for me. Well, she was 74 years old when she wrote the review. <laughs> you wonder if that had part of it. You know, it's a, a new generation coming in. Uh, well, okay, so this is one of the things I want to talk about is that I have some friends who write book reviews, and they told me that they read three books a week, hmm. and that the turnaround time to write a review yeah. is just stupid, you know, yeah. that they, they, they have pressure on them to write 500 pages, 500 words, 750 words in, you know, 10 days. Mm-hmm. And it's almost easier, I think, to write a harsh review because you can pick apart, I'm convinced you can pick apart any work if you select a handful of uh, sentences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I think it's harder to write a positive review and to back it up. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I when I was reviewing books for Amazon, the uh, editor stopped by my desk one day and said, you know, you can write negative review. It's OK to to say that you don't like a book, <laughs> <laughs> which was funny, you know, it, especially because Amazon was trying to sell books. But, <laughs> you know, at that point, they were still also trying to uh, be a, a, a reputable source. And I think. I just sort of had the feeling that unless it was a book 
that I really thought was overrated or an author I thought was overrated and I really had something to say, if it just wasn't that good or it just wasn't to my taste, I just mm -hmm. would rather review something else. I just wanted to review things that I was enthusiastic about. Kind of like with this podcast, actually, mm -hmm. you know, that I'm not going to do episodes on authors where I can't find anything that I really enjoy about them unless it happened yeah. to be if Dostoevsky fell into that category, I would still, a major figure like that, I would cover him. And I would probably try to explore why I was, why it wasn't to my taste. But it just seems like, why tear down everything all the time? The reviews that I remember tend to be positive, actually, mm. not negative. I, I think it's, I, I do think it's harder to write a positive review without sounding like a simp. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, <laughs> You know, because some people are just like, well, you know, like, how could you have liked it that much? You know, how, how do you know where it's going to stand in the Pantheon? And it's like, well, are any of these reviews going to be remembered? Yeah. So getting back to your pick, it's interesting that you you pointed out that Mary McCarthy was taking down Margaret Atwood and that she was a woman doing it. But maybe you were referring to Handmaid's Tale in particular being a kind of a feminist, an early feminist novel. But what it, what interested me about you saying that is that Mary McCarthy's probably her most famous review was the, uh, <laughs> the, the sentence she wrote about Lillian Hellman, where she oh, said, yeah. uh, every word she writes is a lie, including and and the. <laughs> <laughs> okay so i'm gonna take my first pick this is actually i'm not taking this in any order because this actually my number three is the one that i think is probably the best but i thought i would take this uh -huh. one because i'm gonna try to steal it away from you and in some ways i hope you appreciate what this is for me that i am taking david foster wallace's review of uh john updike's toward the end of time i'm setting aside my uh my aversion to david foster wallace in order to take this review i remember so when this finally came out. come around <laughs> finally come around don't gloat i remember when this came out in the new york observer it was back when the observer was a really fun paper to get and uh this yeah. it was really cool at one point years ago and he wrote this was 1997 he wrote this review of updike and updike at that point was it was a weird period for Updike because I think he was he was past his prime, but he was every issue of the New Yorker seemed to have something by Updike in it. And it was a period where everyone, you know, a lot more people I think read the New Yorker. It was back kind of right before the internet. My subscriptions to the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and the New Yorker were kind of like the main source of uh, literary news. But I I felt like, even though this review was great, I felt like David Foster Wallace was a little bit of a hypocrite about this, kind of like uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was writing about the Declaration of Independence while still owning slaves. Wallace himself is kind of guilty of a lot of what he writes about in this review, but Updike was there, ready to be taken down. He was on that New Yorker pedestal, and it seemed like everything he wrote made it into print, and a lot of it didn't really deserve it. And even though I liked some of Updike and, and David Foster Wallace did too, as he acknowledged, it was just a, a time where Updike was ready to be taken down. His flaws were <laughs> overwhelming all of his strengths. And you went back and looked at his earlier works and said, oh man, the the flaws have been here all along. The title of the review is, do you remember this one? The title of the review is John Updike, champion literary phallocrat, drops one. Is this finally the end for magnificent narcissists? And then he talks about the great male narcissists, uh, Mailer, Updike, and Roth. And he says, quote, it is, this is about the, uh, the Updike novel toward the end of time. He writes, it is of the total 25 Updike books I've read, far and away the worst, a novel so mind-bendingly clunky and self-indulgent that it's hard to believe the author let it be published in this kind of shape. Wow. <laughs> and then he goes on and he says, uh, most of the literary readers I know personally are under 40 and a fair number are female and none of them are big admirers of the post-war great male narcissists. But it's Mr. Updike in particular they seem to hate and not merely his books for some reason. Uh, oh, and not merely his books for some reason. Mention the poor man himself and you have to jump back. And then he gives three quotes from his, his uh, women friends. 
Quote, mm-hmm. just a penis with a thesaurus. That's the first one. <laughs> Second one is, has the son of a bitch ever had one unpublished thought? And the third one is, makes misogyny seem literary the same way Limbaugh makes fascism seem funny. <laughs> but I do think he was a little more in the, uh, he was a little closer to Updike in his writing and his personal life than I think he kind of wanted to reveal in this essay. But it's 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 quite a, a tour de force. I have to confess, I've never read Updike. I've never. Oh, you're I'm kidding. Pro- I've probably read some short stories of his, but I've never read Rabbit. Yeah. I, I know what his writing is like because I've read You and I by uh, Nicholas and Baker. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I've read that in David Foster House Review. But yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I think this that that review tells me that certain writers are really ready to be attacked. I mean, so to speak. Yeah. Right. I mean,. It comes to, like, I think Ian McEwen, he's not on my list, but I feel like, you know, he's one book away from being, like, really attacked. <laughs> like, he just wrote a book about a cockroach. Is that right? <laughs> like, he wrote a book about, like, a baby from a yeah. baby's perspective. I mean, he's really kind of like, yeah. what's he doing? Like, I mean, the other day I was reading Black Dogs, which I've read twice, and I think that's a, that's such an underrated book. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's had a good run, so maybe, uh, maybe, maybe someone is sharpening their pencil as we speak. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So, so, what's your right. number two? So, my second pick is James Woods' oh. uh, review of David Foster Wallace. Nice. <laughs> so, James Wood, he he probably could have he's been on guy. here a half yeah. a dozen times. I mean, he's. Uh, let me. Uh, go yeah. ahead, and I'll. Oh yeah, I've got, I've got him on my list too for I, a different. I was going to say. He, more than any non-writer, has made me really dig in to my in my for my love for literature. Mm. Like I, yeah. I, I personally owe him so much. Mm. Um, whenever I read him, I just am always like just impressed, and also just yeah. you know just really love everything he stands for. But he uh, did not like Infinite Jest, and. <laughs> To his and he he likened it along with Don DeLillo and Zadie Smith's White Teeth with this term hysterical realism in right. 2000. You know that they were pursuing vitality at all costs, inserting themselves in the text. But to his credit, years later he sort of recanted and said that he he wished he had slowed down a little bit with David Foster Wallace and that he had started teaching David Foster Wallace's short story collection, brief interviews with mm-hmm. hideous men at mm-hmm. Harvard. So I, I, I always like a story that ends well. And <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of a tragedy. Poor James Wood. I think one of his problems was he wrote this great criticism and then he himself came out with a novel. And after that, he kind of toned down his criticism because his, his own novel didn't really live up to the, yeah harshness that he had been doling out to other people for so long okay well i will take as my number two then i'll jump ahead and i'll take uh, i'll take james wood so we can stay on the theme here uh i was thinking about taking his uh review of ishiguro's the unconsoled because it had the line it invented its own category of badness (laughs) but uh But instead, I'm going to choose his takedown of Zadie Smith, who was pretty much a critical darling after the debut of White Teeth. But then her follow up, The Autograph Man, was less well received. Mm -hmm. And James Wood wrote this in 2002 in the London Review of Books. Quote, its central character, Alex Lee Tandem, is a dreary blank, an empty center entirely filled by his pop culture devotions. Around him swirls a text incapable of ever stiffening into sobriety, a flailing, noisy hash of jokes, cool cultural references, pull quotes, lists, and roaring italics. It is like re- it is like reading a newspaper designed by a kindergarten. <laughs> oh my god. That's good stuff. You do kind of feel like after you read that, not only did this save me from reading the book, those two sentences are probably better than any than the entire book. <laughs> well, I mean, th- th- this was what I was saying about 
you know, waiting for posterity, the judgment of whether a book lasts, because I love White Teeth, but I've, I haven't read any other novels by her. Mm. <clears throat> I'm not clamoring to, to do so. I mean, I, I may pick up NW, a friend of mine was recommending that recently. Yeah. But I, I think it's, it's, it's easy to take a shot at Autograph Man. Mm-hmm. There's probably, you know, millions of novels, but I think the fact that James Wood reviewed it is telling. I think there's right, and that, and so my my third pick is a review by Orville Prescott, who was the main book reviewer for the New York Times for 24 years. Mm-hmm. And you may say, well, who the hell is this guy? Which I often think, you know, when I see a reviewer, I just think, and more and more, I'm finding that reviewers are authors mm-hmm. to to lend that kind of authority that's lacking when you, you ask the question, like, who is this guy? But anyway, Orville Prescott hated Lolita mm. and wrote that it is, he wrote three dolls. It is dull, dull, dull. <laughs> <laughs> and the second was that he found the subject matter repulsive. Mm. And then he had his comeuppance when Gore Vidal attacked him. And over over that or or just over something else? Over something else. Yeah. And just yeah. said that he, that he was basically a prude and that anything other than his background, he, he would, you know, find offensive, including homosexuality. So I, 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 I picked this because I think it's it, it, more than any other piece of journalism, because when, when you read the New York Times front page, I'm sure people, you know, don't care who wrote it. But to me, a book review, it really matters. Like 95% of whether I read it is if I recognize the reviewer. Yeah. And maybe it wasn't the case before, but now it, it, it completely is. Yeah. I think, that's, I think that might be sort of part of getting older, too. You know, because <laughs> when, you're, when you're 20, everybody seems like they know more than you. Oh, yeah. Everybody, it's like, oh, well, if they're, you know, they've read more, they know more. And so you feel like you have a lot to learn. And then as you get older, you think, uh, I don't know that this person has anything to tell me that I'm going to, you know, you you start to see just sort of the, the, uh, the half-assed job that a lot of reviews, reviews are. And so you start looking for the James Woods or the people who really have something that is worth saying. Okay. Orville Prescott. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to stick on that theme a little bit of New York Times reviews of uh, 50s classics. And I'm going to do our old man, our old friend, old professor Richard Stern, who was <laughs> notorious for his 1961 review of Joseph Heller's Catch-22. Oh, boy. What did so, he say to that? You know, oh, oh you don't know the story? So No. Oh, okay. You're going to enjoy this. So the book was getting rave reviews everywhere. People had been talking about it for months before it came out. Then it came out. It was a, you know, smash hit. And Stern was assigned the uh, book. He was reviewing it for the New York Times. And he, I think it was on the front page, but here's the review in full. I'm going to read it to you. (laughs) It's three paragraphs. Catch-22 has much passion, comic and fervent, but it gasps for want of craft and sensibility. A portrait gallery, a collection of anecdotes, some of them wonderful, a parade of scenes, some of them finely assembled, a series of descriptions, yes, but the book is no novel. One can say that it is much too long because its material is repetitive and monotonous. Or one can say that it is too short because none of its many interesting characters and actions is given enough play to become a controlling interest. Its author, Joseph Heller, is like a brilliant painter who decides to throw all the ideas in his sketchbooks onto one canvas, relying on their charm and shock to compensate for the lack of design. That he says, if Catch-22 were intended as a commentary novel, such sideswiping of character and action might be taken care of by thematic control. It fails here because half its incidents are farcical and fantastic. The book is an emotional hodgepodge. No mood is sustained long enough to register for more than a chapter. As satire, Catch-22 makes too many formal concessions to the standard novels of our day. There is a certain amount of progress... The decent get killed off, the self-seekers prosper, and there is even a last-minute turnabout as the war draws to an end. 
One feels the author should have gone all the way and burlesqued not only the passions and incidents of war, but the traditions of representing them as well. It might have saved him from some of the emotional pretzels, which twist the sharpness of his talent. End quote. <laughs> now, the reason why I read all of that, uh, you know, I, I don't know. What did that take? A couple of minutes at least, right? The reason why I read all of that is because Joseph Heller's biographer said, Joe could quote the entire review bitterly, <laughs> word for word, three decades later. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then he says, I did, Joseph Heller asked about the review, said, I didn't think my family and I would ever smile again. <laughs> uh, which is kind of the... the that's the the one component of this, looking at these hatchet jobs. There are a lot of very funny things. You rarely get the author's response to it. Yeah. We, we kind of dipped into that when we did our great literary duels, that uh, a lot of them were reviews and then people firing back at a bad review. But these hatchet jobs I have here, you know, we don't hear what Updike thought of uh, <laughs> David Foster Wallace's review of him or being called a penis with a thesaurus. Okay, so what are we up to? Number four? All right, number four, I I went with uh, Jonathan Saffron Foyer's uh, We Are the Weather. Mm. It's kind of the rise of novelists, I think in the last uh, five years or so, the rise of novelists tackling social issues from the, the camp that everyone agrees with, mm-hmm. almost everyone agrees with, and then writing like a basically a 150-page book charging... $15 that summarizes stuff that everyone either knows or can learn pretty easily. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a celebrity writing a book. Mm-hmm. It's kind of akin to that. Like if right. Kate, Kate Moss wrote a book about like dogs, you know? So, but it, it's hard to attack because the, the, their, their hearts are in the right place. You know, John, Jonathan Saffron Foer is, is right. a vegan and he's an environmentalist. And, but I love this review because um, it was done by uh, someone who published a book called A Planet to Win with Verso, which is probably one of my favorite academic publishers, mm-hmm. Kate Aronoff. And she wrote the review in this kind of jokey way she wrote hi i am a popular novelist and these are my thoughts about global warming i grew up in a major east coast city or perhaps some lesser sadder place that i've built a relatively successful career processing my feelings about in a semi-autobiographical manner (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's you know i I loved it because yeah. it, it, it articulated what I feel, which I'm reluctant to do because I'm like, hey, if Jonathan Saffron Foyer cares about the environment, you know, go for it. I mean, spread the message. Yeah. But there is something kind of like lurid and, you know, parasitical about the way he's basically trying to pass off like an academic paper or a more well-researched book as this like layperson's guide. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, well, do we really need this? Or should we just maybe look to, you know, Oxford University Press or Verso and, or Blackwell and try to get a book that actually gives us more information? Yeah. And, and that it doesn't have to be sort of semi-autobiographical and have sort of his thoughts about himself front and center. I I like that because I like when humor is used in a way that just makes you see the whole project in a different light. Yeah. (laughs) I remember reading when Philip Roth was having one of his renaissances, late career renaissances. And and, uh, I remember there was something in his book. I think it was that he, the protagonist, like went to a bar and was immediately propositioned by this the protagonist was like in his 60s or 70s. He was immediately propositioned by a woman of like 25 years old who wanted him to come and join her and her lesbian lover in a threesome. And uh, and the reviewer, the reviewer was this woman. I wish I remember who it was. But the reviewer said like, oh, yeah, it must happen all the time. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, are we really supposed to expect that, you know, this isn't just Philip Roth, like, dreaming up his something that he thinks will titillate him? Okay, that's a good one. Why don't I jump to the one that I actually think is maybe the best uh, hatchet job of all time? Uh, all right. And that is Mark Twain's review of James Fenimore Cooper. Have you read this before? No. Oh, okay. But Mark Twain, I mean, you can't Uh, go wrong with him. Yeah, he had some other good lines with, uh, I mean, he was was just great on literature in general. He, let's see, he had a line about uh, Jane Austen, uh, Pride and Prejudice, where he said, every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up and hit her over the skull with her own shin bone. (laughs) (laughs) which is pretty good and then he had of henry james he said once you've put one of his books down you simply can't pick it up again Uh, which is good but he has this it's this amazing review of james fenimore cooper's novel the deer slayer and you read it and you'll never read fenimore cooper again the same way you'd never read him with a straight face same way and you it's full of snarky comments but it really exposes cooper and his flaws as a writer and also just kind of as a thinker mm-hmm. and he says he starts out and he says uh cooper's art has some defects in one place in deerslayer and in the restricted space of two-thirds of a page cooper has scored 114 offenses against literary art out of a possible 115 it breaks the record. <laughs> and then he says, there are 19 rules governing literary art in domain of romantic fiction. Some say 22. In Deerslayer, Cooper violated 18 of them. These 18 require... And then he lists like the 18 rules and he talks about how uh, Fenimore Cooper... And he, it's a lot of it is is he makes fun of his sentences. He makes fun of his grammar. He makes fun of his descriptions. But a lot of it is things like, you know, every time a Cooper person is in peril and absolute silence is worth $4 a minute, he is sure to step on a dry twig. And, uh, <laughs> he says the whole the leather stocking series ought to have been called the broken twig series. But he does this. He has this passage that's just incredible where he... He talks about how there's this ship that's passing through this river, and these Indians are going to attack the ship. And so he talks about how Cooper basically uh, has this idea where the Indians are going to stretch a tree across the river, and then they're going to hide in the foliage of this tree that they've bent over the river, and they're going to use that to jump down on top of the ship from above, right? It's six Indians are going to do this. Dwayne goes through then and he, he does the measurements because Cooper has talked about the size of this book and the size of the river and the size of the tree that gets stretched over it. And so Dwayne points out that he's basically made the the size of the boat is 18 feet wide in a 20 foot river. And the the boat is traveling at one mile an hour. And so he said, you know, did the Indians not realize that instead of stretching this tree across the river and climbing into it and hiding, they could have just stepped onto the they could have just stepped onto the boat from the shore? You know, it was only a foot. <laughs> there was only a foot passage between the boat and the the uh, the bank of the river. But then the best part was he's talking about how long this this is this boat. It's 140 feet long, right? And mm-hmm. it's moving a mile an hour, and so. If these Indians are hiding in this tree, they'll, <laughs> they have a minute and a half to jump onto this boat. And it's so wide that there's almost no river, you know, on either side of it. And the first Indian jumps and he misses the boat. And then the second Indian jumps for the boat as well and misses it farther away. And then the third Indian jumps for the boat and is even further the fourth jumps and then so finally the last indian it's like at that point he's just watched you know five of his of his comrades jumping for this boat and they all miss it getting farther and farther away and so he jumps for it as well and he misses it by even even more and twain just points out like this and um you know several other different kinds of things that uh uh, Fenimore Cooper gets wrong. It's a hilarious review of it. And you you read it and you just think, Twain knows so much more than Cooper and is so much better at this, at this at writing and imagining what's happening here and describing it and all of that, that you, you realize that uh, 
Cooper was uh, uh, was just kind of a hack. <laughs> oh man, we should meet. We should read more Mark Twain. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking. I yeah. think we did one episode on Twain, but yeah, he is a total gem. There, there really isn't. It's hard to. I mean, there's. I guess there's James Thurber, and there've been some other humorists, but I don't think anybody. Yeah. Even today is just as sharp as as Twain was for as long as he was. I mean, reading Huckleberry Finn really kind of, I, I think, honed my sarcasm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember just loving that book. As yeah. A kid. Okay. Yeah. Who's your fifth? All right. So I've got to go with a book by Tom Hanks because I just, I found these. <laughs> <laughs> reviews of celebrity books writing novels yeah right. hilarious oh like sean penn's novel yeah so this this was a review in the baffler which is our yep. alma mater you know started by those guys yep. um and it was a collection of 17 short stories by tom hanks called and the collection was called uncommon type and yep. um <laughs> I know this. I know this review. <laughs> it's a, in 400 pages, there's hardly even a hint of conflict or a suggestion that American life is anything less than a holiday where everyone rides Schwinn bikes, leaves the immigration office to go bowling, and has a dog named Biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just it must have been so much fun writing this. But I mean, you know, in, in seriousness, you know, it's one of those things where you, if you had millions of dollars and hundreds of hours of time mm. and you like literature, why not try, you know, trying to write a short story? Yeah. And I just don't care for them. I just don't think it's I mean, I think that there's a reason why the, the, the publishers wouldn't publish this unless you were Tom Hanks. Yeah. The one exception I, I, I saw was Jesse Eisenberg, the actor. Hmm. He had published a collection of short stories and I started to read them at a bookstore and I thought they weren't bad. Yeah. yeah. I think they, I think it's, you, you can tell when someone recognizes their, their limitations and just tries to like work within, hmm. you know, a genre. Yeah. So, it's there have been so many examples of terrible books. A lot of them are children's books, I guess. So more power to them. But boy, taking on Tom Hanks—that's uh, that's <laughs> that's up there with. I mean, Jimmy Stewart had those poems that he used to read on uh, Johnny Carson. Do you remember that? We used to imitate those when we were at college about the uh, doing the Jimmy Stewart voice, talking about his dog Spot, that kind of thing. They were all about his dog. <laughs> So Hanks, Jimmy Stewart, who else? Fred Rogers, you hate him too? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I thought, um, you know, it's funny because Dale Peck actually had oh, a book yeah. called Hatchet Jobs, and I was going to take that, but I jumped ahead and, and took James Wood and, and Zadie Smith, but he did have that that famous review in 2002 where he said, Rick Moody is the worst writer of his generation. and. Yeah he was kind of setting out in that review a philosophy of hatchet jobs that it was really that he was trying to explain, he was trying to think through why Moody's books affected him the way that they did. And, yeah. you know, he recognized that it wasn't exactly calm or objective, but he also wanted to emphasize to people, you know, why are you all reading this? Why, why do we have to pretend that this is good when it's not? And he, he really did kind of back it up with, with his yeah. uh, argument and, and his description of of why, although some of them are just kind of cheap shots. Actually, speaking of cheap shots, why don't I go through, I had some honorable <laughs> mentions, so why don't I just tick those off? These are some great lines that came out of reviews before I uh, pick my last one. Thackeray, this wasn't a review, this was a comment from a friend. So Thackeray <laughs> wrote The Virginians, and he said to wow. his friend, ah, that was the worst novel I ever wrote. And the friend said, oh, no. That's the worst novel that anyone ever wrote. <laughs> Here's sort of a drive-by hedge job. Uh, Susan Cohen of the Charleston newspaper 
was reviewing Stieg Larsson's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and she said, quote, This is easily one of the worst books I've ever read, and bear in mind that I've read John Grisham. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one I didn't really get. Damon Runyon uh, wrote of Alice in Wonderland, This is nothing but a pack of lies, which... I don't know wow. what he thought he was reading. I mean, did he <laughs> think it was nonfiction? I, I don't know what he, I don't know exactly how to take that. Randall Jarrell uh, reviewed, he had some really good savage reviews, Randall Jarrell, and he reviewed a work of poetry by someone named Oscar Williams. And he said, this book gives the impression of being written on a typewriter by a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's a few of famous people, a London critics out of Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman is as unacquainted with art as a hog with mathematics. My God. Uh, a Russian critic talking about Coleridge called it a huge pendulum attached to a small clock. And H.L. Mencken, writing about The Great Gatsby, said a glorified anecdote was his uh, summary of it. I've got one, uh, poor Melville, in his book, uh, Pierre, the Boston Globe said, quote, but the amount of utter trash in the volume is almost infinite. Trash of conception, execution, dialogue, and sentiment. Whoever buys the book on the strength of Melville's reputation will be cheating himself of his money. <laughs> and then, okay, so let me get to my, my final pick. So I... I looked at the uh, that review of Whitman. I, I looked at Keats again because of especially because of the review that Shelley later said had killed Keats. Uh, but I've talked about that review before. There was the review of Wuthering Heights, which is another famous. Uh, you know, critics really piled onto that how a human being could have attempted such a book as the present without committing suicide before he had finished a dozen chapters as a mystery. It is a compound of vulgar depravity and unnatural horrors. So. Anyway, I'm going to take something after doing all of those comical ones, I thought, who could follow that. Of course, Dorothy Parker could. And I think we mentioned this in the Dorothy Parker episode, but it's so good, I wanted to read a little bit more of it. It's the, her review of A.A. Uh, a. Milne's House on Pooh Corner, uh -huh. which she reviewed in The New Yorker. And it starts with the opening, <laughs> starts with the opening of the book. And it's, uh, quote, well, you'll see Piglet when you listen, because this is how it begins. The more it snows, tiddly palm, tiddly what, said Piglet? And then in parentheses it says, he took, as you might say, the very words out of your correspondent's mouth. Palm, said Pooh, I put that to make it more hummy. And it is that word hummy, my darlings, that marks the first place in the house at Pooh Corner, at which Tonstant Weeder flowed up. <laughs> which is just great you know you might read uh poo and think oh this is sweet i want to curl up with a book like this it will make me feel warm and safe and dorothy <laughs> parker comes along and you think nah i'd rather be at a bar sipping a martini and making fun of the world <laughs> okay well that's what i had for uh Hatchet Jobs. I left a few others on the, the cutting room floor. Virginia Woolf on James Joyce's Ulysses was a pretty famous one. Uh, did you have any others? Well, I was going to pick Nausgaard because mm. I, I, I love Nausgaard, but his last book got kind of uniformly bad reviews. Yeah. But I, I, I also was just going to go down the path of you know, when you love a writer, so you almost don't care how bad the review is. Mm. So there's a perverse part of you that yeah. enjoys reading the bad review and thinking like, well, you just don't get it. Right. <laughs> 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 but I think Amazon is great for that. I love how like there's even like a positive review of Martin Amos's Yellow Dog. Yeah. yeah. People will just write anything. <laughs> okay. Well, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike for joining me today and to all my emailers. We are part of the Podglomerate Network, which you can find at www.thepodglomerate.com. And we are also part of LitHub Radio. You can learn more about the show at historyofliterature.com or on Twitter at the Jack Wilson. That's T-H-E-J-A-C-K-E, Wilson. 
Support the show at patreon.com slash literature or by buying me a virtual coffee at historyofliterature.com slash shop. Hope you are all well. We will hopefully have our final edition of Shakespeare's Sonnets, our August theme for Thursdays coming up this Thursday. Can you guess what our last sonnet will be? There are a few big candidates left. We play the hits, people. We play the hits. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.